This is episode 130 of the Landscape Photography Show, and before we get into the show, I do want to tell you about the sponsor for the podcast, and that is the Nature Photographers Network, or NPN for short. You can go to naturephotographers.network and sign up for a yearly membership for $49, or you can use the code LPS10 for 10% off of that for an entire year subscription. Now, what do you get from that? You get photo critiques from some of the pros all over the world, plus photo critiques from some of your peers. You get weekly challenges. You get webinars. You get Ask Me Anythings with some of the best pros on the planet. So really, you get all of this for just 44 and change when you use the code LPS10 during checkout at naturephotographers.network. Why would you not do that? I know if I was getting started, that would be the first place I would be going to learn from the pros who do it, who make money from it. That's all you get from that. So go to naturephotographers.network and sign up for a yearly membership for $49. But when you're filling out your form to pay, go ahead and use the code LPS10 for 10% off. In today's episode, we're talking with photographer and podcaster. Brenda Petrella. And and I enjoyed talking with Brenda because it's always nice to hear from another podcaster and interact with them. So it was a fun conversation to have about how she got into photography, what she's learned from the podcast, all of that coming up. The Landscape Photography Show is a podcast where you can listen to your favorite photographers talk about their journey in photography. It's a place where you can be inspired and also learn how to take better photos. So sit back, relax, and enjoy the show. Hey, what's up, guys? We're here with Brenda Petrella, and welcome back into the podcast. Brenda has her own podcast, which we're going to get into and talk about in just a little while. But Brenda, first, I wanted to just go ahead and welcome you to the show. Thank you for joining the show and making time for us. Um, I know schedules can be a little bit hectic when you're trying to organize your own podcast, so it's nice to have another photographer who kind of knows that life, knows that story. But why don't you get us all caught up to speed and on the same page with who you are by telling us a little bit about yourself and how you got into photography and and what kind of led you on the path to where you are right now. Sure. Well, first, thank you, David. It's really great to be sitting down and having this conversation with you. I, I think we've been following each other on Instagram and a bit online for a while now, so it's nice to actually have a conversation. So thank you for having me on the show today. Of course, of course. Yeah, and and speaking of scheduling, the listeners uh, for a little background, we had to reschedule this multiple times before we could get our schedules to align. So I'm glad it finally worked out. Um, in terms of my background, uh, let's see. I actually have never been formally trained in photography. It's it's been a passion of mine uh, for a long time. But I was actually trained as a scientist. So my background is in molecular biology. Uh, have a PhD in molecular biology, so I spent a good majority of my adult life getting educated to become a cancer researcher and <clears throat> achieved that. I, I had my own laboratory uh, working on the molecular mechanisms of kidney cancer for a number of years. Um, and funding at that time, national funding was really tight. I had about a 5% chance of getting my next grant at that time. This is sort of the 2010, 2013-ish kind of uh, time frame. And um, I realized that that meant I had a 95% chance of not getting funded, which, you know, no nobody usually wants to play those types of odds. And a lot of the laboratories that I was uh, in, the, in my department were closing due to lack of funding. And I sort of had this decision to make when I had a year left on my grant about what to do do I keep applying for funding or do I close the lab? And at that point, I decided to um, wrap things up and close the lab. And so I basically closed the doors on my research career to then transfer into a more administrative role where I was still using my my background as a scientist to oversee safety and uh, research safety and compliance um, at the institution that I was at, which is uh, Dartmouth College in New Hampshire. And so 
I was what was called the biosafety officer, um, which is just a a funny word. I didn't have like a badge or anything like that, (laughs) but I had to make sure that the, all the research that was being conducted at the institution and at the medical school was um, complying with all the safety regulations and whatnot. And that was like a perfect fit in a lot of ways in that I was using my background as a scientist. I, I knew what it was like being on that side of the bench and, you know, so I could build these bridges between the the safety folks who tended to be uh, everyone disliked them <laughs> uh, because they were enforcing rules and things like that. And um, so I, I think it, I really enjoy trying to explain why these regulations were important to the scientists and helping them out and making the whole process easier for them. But I was working like 80 hours a week. Um, I live in Vermont and I never saw the light of day. And I was like, why am I doing this? This, I, this could be a career. This could, you know, round out the rest of my career. It's a well-paying job. I've got benefits, all that. And yet I was completely miserable and I could not see myself doing this for another 25 years or so. And so I did it for about three years, um, ended up actually slipping into a, a rather deep depression during that time. Um, being just really unhealthy and unhappy and unable to take care of myself. Um, and my dad also um, ended up having to have sort of emergent heart surgery at the time. And and he's somebody who has worked his butt off his whole life and always put, you know, family and work before his own um, self-care and, and pleasure and that sort of thing. And I was like, wow, I, I don't, I don't want that to happen to me where I'm entering the retirement age and, and now I'm, you know, need cardiac surgery because of whatever. And so all of that to say that, um, I decided to resign from that job at the very end of 2016 with no plan whatsoever. I had no idea what I was going to do. Um, but I knew I needed to hit pause, reassess and take care of myself and get myself healthy again. Coincidentally, just the year prior, um, so my my birthday's in February, so February of 2016, I was gifted my first DSLR camera. Now, I had never done photography in a formal way prior to that. I was always passionate about photography. Um, I've always been very outdoorsy and, and have had a deep connection to nature. That's been my sort of way that I rejuvenate. And um, anytime that I would go out and go hiking, I'd be like, oh man, I wish I had a camera. I wish I could photograph with this. I wish I knew how to do that. Um, and it was always there ever since I was a kid, I, I felt that way. Um, but because I was on this track to be a scientist, I was like, you know, that's child's play. I'm not going to let myself <laughs> enjoy that <laughs> time. Um, so I never actually invested in a camera, um, except for like a simple point and shoot kind of thing. So I had no idea what I was doing. But once I had it and I was like, okay, I, I need to, I, I really want to learn this, how to do photography. I want to understand what apertures and shutter speed and ISO and all that. I had no idea how to do any of it. And because I was still working and everything, the only time I had at that point to, to really study photography was to do night photography. And it's actually a great way to learn the exposure triangle. Um, and, and it was also just provided, you know, time under the stars to give me that time to reflect and try to figure out over that next year, whether I was going to continue in this career or not. Um, and so by the end of that year, I, I had, you know, been working on my photography pretty intensely and, uh, another sort of side part of the story, sorry, I'm babbling on about this, but, um, while I was still at Dartmouth, I had started, uh, what's called a green labs program, which is a way of making scientific practices more sustainable. So, you know, everything we use is single use plastics. There's a ton of waste. There's a lot of hazardous chemical waste, you know, and so how can we make our research more environmentally friendly? And so I was incorporating that, um, while I was at Dartmouth. And so when I left, I was like, okay, I'm going to keep pursuing this Green Labs lab sustainability idea. I thought maybe I could consult other institutions on greening up their processes while I'm also going to do this photography thing that I'm completely obsessed with and totally love. And interestingly, over the course of the next year, 2017, 
um, opportunities in photography just kept opening up and opportunities with the green labs idea kept closing. And so about the end of 2017, I was like, okay, I guess maybe I go all in on photography and see what happens. Um, and so that's how, that's how I got my start. (laughs) What was your entry point into that world? Like, like ending the green labs journey and jumping full-time into photography and, and just kind of putting your eggs into that basket? It was pretty terrifying. Um, I have to say that, you know, I, I have a partner who is uh, very supportive and and financially able to support the two of us. And so my losing my um, income that I provided to our household wasn't a huge hit to us. And so I had saved up, you know, because I this was a very long drawn out process of deciding. Um, so I had some savings and I also have the support, you know, of my partner. And so that made it a lot easier to be to really try to sit down and figure out, well, what is it that I want to do? And I, you know, I tried a lot of different things. So at that time, 2017, you know, stock photography really wasn't a thing anymore, but I dabbled in it a little bit. I looked into uh, licensing of images um, that has never proven for me anyway to be a very profitable outlet. Um, and in the meantime, um, I was teaching a little photography on the side, and I realized I really loved teaching, uh, which I also liked doing when I was doing science. So it's not that surprising. Um, but I I realized that you know you know I'm. I am immersing myself so much in the study of photography that there are people out there who are just starting and I can help them. And I was very excited to be able to share with them by like, hey, I figured this out. Like, this is how this works, you know. And so I think I had a lot of, um, you know, enthusiasm behind sharing that knowledge with others. And our neighbor at the time had said, um, well, why don't you start a YouTube channel? And I thought, that's crazy. Why would I ever do that? Like, I don't want to be in front of the camera. I want to be the one doing the photography. And, um, but he was, he was, you know, a teenager at the time and, and very encouraging. And so I thought, all right, well, I'll, no one's going to watch it. First of all, second of all, I don't have to put anything out that isn't halfway decent and, and I'll see what happens. So again, it was just a big experiment. Like a lot of these things have been for me and, and it turned out I really did enjoy creating the videos and, um, the, you know, those early videos as anyone who gets onto YouTube are, are really horrendous and, and cringeworthy to look back at, but people liked them. And it, it made me realize that I can reach so many more people online than I can doing one-off lessons here and there, uh, locally. And, um, and so I started to, uh, focus more on online platforms and how to teach online. And that's sort of where, how I ended up starting outdoor photography school. Let's go that direction of kind of you're, you're saying, you know, I figured this out. You can too. It seems like you have a very similar path into landscape outdoor photography that a lot of other people have, you know, getting the DSLR, like going outdoors, like hiking, like spending that time outside and just wishing you were able to do that. If you had advice for them, like putting yourself in their shoes now, which is easy for you because you've been there, Mm -hmm. what advice would you give them? keep trying. <laughs> uh, don't give up. Um, you know, if this is something that you're really passionate about and you absolutely love doing, then just keep doing it and do it for you and not not for um, recognition or no- notoriety from others. Um, because while that's nice, if you can get that, um, that's not in the end, at the end of the day, you know, that's not going to necessarily pay the bills and it's not going to um, really fulfill you as much as spending that time working on your art, you know, getting better at the craft and really honing in on what you really love to photograph rather than if it's different than uh, what's popular to photograph. Um, So I think early on when I first got onto Instagram, 
I would go out and do photography and I'd be like, well, what's going to be good on first? First, I was doing photography just for me. And then I started to have this voice in the back of my head being like, well, is this going to do well? Is this going to like grow my following? Will this be something that people share? You know, and so I had I I had that voice in the back of my head and um, I started creating photographs that are not necessarily the types of photographs that I would want to be creating. So I would, you know, maybe everybody has to kind of go through that. But um, if you can avoid it and just stay true to yourself, I think it will be more rewarding in the end. Was that difficult for you to learn about your photography? No, I think once I realized that that's what I was doing, um, I started to do things like sort of sort of like how I also thought about my approach to YouTube. You know, when I would create a YouTube video, um, often I would take people out in the field and do like a vlog kind of thing. Um, so I was teaching in the field and then, but I didn't find that I was able to really do my own photography, you know, and I'm sure you're familiar with this too. Like, it's so hard to mm-hmm. be like, oh, B-roll. Oh, how am I going to tell this story? Oh, uh, what am I, te- what are my teaching points? And, you know, how am I going to show that in a entertaining and, you know, graphically pleasing way online? Um, and I found that meant that I actually wasn't really connecting with nature in a way that I enjoy doing, which enables me to then find compositions and that sort of thing. So I would be like, okay, this is a, if I'm going to go out and do photography this week, this week it's about YouTube. Next week it's for me. And I was doing that with uh, Instagram too. I'd be like, well, this is going to be an image that I think will do well on Instagram. That's fine. But I'm not, I'm going to set that aside and just create images for whatever I want to create, whatever is going to make me happy or push my own boundaries so that I can learn something new. Um, You know, one thing that I like doing and I recommend people do when, especially when they're like in a creative rut or something like that, is to allow yourself to make a whole lot of crappy images, like just make a ton of mistakes on purpose, you know, um, and you'll end up with these nice surprises of like, oh, I didn't know. Like I, I thought I had to only use these types of shutter speeds for this type of composition or this type of subject or whatever. But when you kind of throw that out, you end up finding new and interesting ways of being creative with your photography. And you don't ever have to share that with anyone, but it can help grow your skills as a photographer. That's really fascinating because a lot of times when we look at quote unquote crappy images, um, we get really upset and annoyed and and you're saying the opposite. It could be a a learning experience for something like, let's say if you're into really grand landscapes, you switch it around and go for small scene photography, Mm -hmm. intricate detail design, texture and photography. Mm hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Or, or, you know, trying abstracts and that might not be your thing at all. And, you know, it really does challenge you to look for um, geometries of subjects and how those lines and areas of contrast and color contrast and things like that are playing together to um, form a pattern or an interesting texture or something like that. Like that I have recently been doing that more just playing around with abstracts um, one, because I enjoy it, but two, because it's been a really good way to exercise those compositional muscles, <laughs> you know, like it's just not evident. It's not apparent how to compose those types of things. And so most of the ones I'm creating are, are not ever ones I would put in a portfolio or post online because they're just not good. Um, but it gives me, you know, maybe this is the scientist in me. It gives me data to look at and say, okay, well, in the field, I was drawn to this little area of, you know, whatever it is, like a, a interesting tree bark or something. And I was trying to find a good pattern in there or ferns. That's one thing. Like, um, we have a ton of ferns here in Vermont and they, they're so beautiful. They're so prevalent and they're so hard to photograph <laughs> for me anyway. Um, I have yet to create a really uh, compelling fern photograph that I love. And, um, but I keep trying. And when I get back, I'll, I'll try to figure it out. Like, okay, well, 
why didn't that work? You know, I, I don't, I'm not loving this image. Why not? And, and then I try to analyze why not. So I don't um, get frustrated necessarily because I do think it is so important to growth to be able to um, have that sort of objective view of your photographs and say like, okay, well, it didn't work. That's too bad. But why didn't it work? What can I be doing differently next time? And then do that differently next time and see if it makes a difference. Um, so yeah, I don't know if I'm getting off topic there, but um, being, being willing to make mistakes, like another one would be um, intentional camera movement. By definition, that's going to have a lot of throwouts, uh, you know, a lot of images that just don't work. And with that, if people don't know that what that is, is when you're using a slow shutter speed and moving the camera intentionally, um, usually in one direction, but it could be multiple directions or you could spin it and you get this abstract um, sort of blurry picture that reduces the composition or the subject down to literally just colors, areas of contrast and, um, and tonal contrast and colors. Um, somewhat lines. It depends. Like sometimes when you're doing like ICM of trees, you'll get these blurry lines, but they're uniform in a lot of ways. And it's really interesting to do that. Um, but again, people might be like, well, this is this, if I move my camera unintentionally, that's a mistake. But if you do it intentionally, you can actually start to create some really interesting things. So taking that approach of, of um, giving yourself permission to mess up and try again, I think can be really valuable. Hey guys, I just want to pause real quick. It can be really frustrating trying to improve your photography and get better when you just want somebody to tell you what you're doing wrong and what you can improve on. Now, I get that on a deep level because I felt the same thing when I was starting. If I had something like Nature Photographers Network when I was starting where I could just pay for a year, go on there and interact with some of my photography heroes and get their feedback on my images, I probably would have gone pro two years earlier than I did because my photos would have looked that much better. So if you want to sign up for that, they're going to give you as a listener to the podcast 10% off of a yearly membership. If you use the code LPS10 during checkout after you go to naturephotographers.network and sign up for that membership. Again, that's naturephotographers.network using the code LPS10 for 10% off. Let's get back to our talk with Brenda. I want to get into your podcast specifically. Well, Give us a, a bird's eye view of what the podcast is and, and not only that, but where people people can go to find that. Sure. Yeah. Thank you. Um, so it's called the Outdoor Photography Podcast. Um, you can find it on any of the podcast directories um, or you can just go to a web, the website I have for it, which is the uh, it's just outdoorphotographypodcast.com and you can listen to episodes there and uh, see profiles on our guests and things like that. So. I started it in late March, early April of last year, uh, so 2021, and um, it is a mixed style weekly podcast, so it's every Tuesday, and um, I do long-form interviews just like this podcast uh, with another guest that's either, most commonly, it's a landscape or nature photographer or wildlife or conservation photographer every once in a while. Um, I'll also invite someone on from the outdoor industry. So this could be someone who's um, into helping people get ready for hiking, you know, like a fitness expert or somebody who is um, like we had somebody on who was a, um, a wilderness first responder. And so we talked a lot about safety in the outdoors. Um, so that's every other week. And then every other week from that, I have what's called a tidbit Tuesday and that's just a solo episode, a lot shorter, like 15, 20 minutes, where I give a photography tip or an outdoor tip and or answer listener questions. So 
on the Outdoor Photography Podcast website. There is a place where people can record questions if they want to, and then I do my best to answer those on the show. Um, so those are much more, th- those types of episodes, those Tidbit Tuesdays are much more educational uh, how-to type of content, whereas the interviews are just like you would expect on on this podcast here, so much more conversational. Um, and I think it's a nice mix between um, hearing about a, a photographer and their work versus uh, the more educational stuff. Um, and yeah, the only other thing I would add to that is the reason I, one of the reasons why I wanted to create Outdoor Photography School and, and why I called it that is because um, I find that learning about the outdoors is something that often gets overlooked when people are teaching landscape photography or nature photography. And I found on my YouTube channel that I was getting questions from people along the lines of, um, well, aren't you afraid of raccoons? Or how do you feel safe hiking alone? And how do you know what to pack? And and then I would also get some questions that um, would really indicate that people had really no idea how to be out in the outdoors safely and comfortably. Um, and that was sort of eye-opening for me because I've always been um, part of nature ever since I was a kid. It was just, it's just very natural for me to be out there and feel comfortable. I'm not afraid of raccoons <laughs> or other wildlife. I, I know how to prepare myself for those. I'm actually more afraid of running into another human on a very remote trail. Um, so it made me realize like, oh yeah, when you go to all these, you know, learn photography type of websites, no one's really talking about the outdoors. And so that was a, an additional perspective that I wanted to provide uh, through Outdoor Photography School and the podcast. Who is afraid of raccoons? I don't know. <laughs> I mean, I don't mean to laugh. I, I, people are apparently. So, I mean, raccoons and bears, those are the two animals that come up the most are being afraid of is raccoons it... and bears. And I can understand bears, but I don't know, rabid raccoons maybe? That's what I was going to say. Is it the rabies? Like I'm on my list, it's like bears and snakes. Yeah. For me, it's spiders. <laughs> In all honesty. Okay. Okay. Uh, ticks, I have... ticks are not great for. Right. Know. No, no, they are not. That's fascinating. Raccoons. Um, okay. Interesting. Yeah. I, I have know. something else to look out for, I guess, that right. I'm unaware of. <laughs> I'm a bit naive about raccoon afraidity if you want to make up a new word (laughs) fascinating okay the podcast though enough of raccoons Mm -hmm. um what have you learned like about yourself as a photographer from the podcast Mm, that's a really interesting question hmm um i think kind of like what we were saying earlier about saying staying true to yourself i feel validated in that um in talking to a lot of these people who we've had as guests on the show so far um that seems to be something that other people will express and so um maybe it is a a natural progression through one's journey as a photographer is to sort of um you know have the passion for it put yourself out there want to be like everybody else and and fit in and then be like, wait a minute, th- this isn't why I'm doing this, and go back to your origins in a way. Um, and so hearing hearing that from other people, uh, I feel much more um, strongly about doing that for myself, um, about being like, you know, it's okay. You know, I used to think of myself as a landscape photographer, and now I think of myself more as a nature photographer. Not that there's a huge difference, but Um, it turns out I don't really like photographing the grand landscape. I mean, it's beautiful and I can appreciate, um, and, and really enjoy other people's, uh, images that are of the grand landscape. And I'll, and I will certainly photograph it when I have the opportunity. Um, and maybe it's a factor of being in Vermont where we don't really have a lot of grand landscapes here. It's much more about small scenes, but that's what I'm inclined to do. I'm perfectly happy, um, you know, playing in the forest or, sitting by a stream for hours on end photographing that area. Um, and to feel like that's okay, that I'm not like less creative or, um, not, I'm, you know, I feel like I still have some photography chops, even if I'm not doing the big grand 
landscape or some epic type of images that are going to blow up online and that sort of thing. And so I think I think that's one thing I've learned about myself through having these conversations is, um, you know, really photograph what you love to photograph and don't worry about it. Yeah, that that's a good answer. I for do you feel like and and maybe this is just a selfish question for me. Do you feel like a little bit selfish having a podcast and and asking questions and having like access to some of these photographers that that so many people look up to? I wouldn't say I feel selfish. I, I haven't had that feeling, but I do feel grateful. I feel so mm. amazed that people would agree to come on the show. <laughs> you mm. know, when I first started, I it was, you know, reaching out to people that I didn't necessarily know. Um, and and they said yes. And we had these great conversations. And um, it's really expanded my world in a way. Um, you know, I was feeling quite lonely as a photographer. I feel like most most landscape and nature photographers that you see out there who are, you know, hugely successful are all sort of in the, in the West and not so much up here in the Northeast. And, um, so connecting with other photographers was one reason why I I wanted to start the podcast was, um, I I had a, a couple of reasons. One was to connect with other photographers and start to build out sort of a congenial community of photographers that I could consider friends or, or colleagues in a way. Um, and to, to have an outlet other than YouTube that I could provide educational content to, to people who were following me. Cause I really wanted to continue doing that. And YouTube became too difficult for me to do logistically. And so, um, the podcast seemed like a great way to do that. And it's so far, it's been very much more successful than I imagined it would be uh, when I first started out. Um, and so I'm, I'm very grateful for that. In terms of content, uh, I know so many people push YouTube and want to start a successful YouTube channel. In terms of content, though, why should somebody start a podcast? And And I guess this is a two-part question, because is it too late for somebody to start a podcast in the photography community? Mm, yeah, I don't know. Um, I don't think so. Um, you know, I don't, to, to answer the the basic question, is it too late to start a podcast? No, I don't think so. I think it is actually uh, an outlet, a content outlet that's going to be taking off more and more, um, you know, with, it's not just an Apple thing now. Now there's so many different podcast players out there you know, you can do it on Amazon, you can do it on um, Google, obviously, and also um, YouTube. YouTube has recently been changing things so that audio content um, would be permissible on a, on a platform like YouTube, which you wouldn't really think it would be, but it could work. Um, of course, video podcasting would do much better on YouTube, but of course, having a, a an interview type of uh, style podcast two talking heads might not be the most interesting thing to look at for an hour, but they have it so that you can be, you know, playing it in the background, just like you would an audio player. Um, so that, that is also an indication that podcasting as a content platform, um, is still in its infancy. I think, um, whether it's too late to start a, another photography podcast, I don't think so. I mean that I started one a year ago and it's doing well. So I think it depends on what message you have and what voice you have, what, what it is you want to share with the world. And then whether that's re- resonating with people. Um, so, uh, yeah, there are a lot of people who start podcasts and, and don't get past, you know, episode seven or 10, um, because it is a lot of work, <laughs> it turns out, <laughs> as you know. Um, but what I love about it is, I feel like, well, for one, on YouTube, I wasn't connecting with other photographers, right? So there was that. Um, two, it's much more intimate in my mind to have a conversation like you, how the, you and I are having. Um, but I feel like it's also, you know, some when you're, someone's listening to the podcast, it's almost like they're in the room with you having that conversation. And and they're listening to the content usually while they're doing something else. So you can go for a walk, you can do dishes, you can be, you know, 
vacuuming or whatever, you can you can be doing other sort of menial tasks um, and still listen to the podcast and still get valuable uh, information out of it. Um, commuting, obviously, is another one. Uh, whereas with YouTube, you kind of have to be stuck in front of the screen watching what's going on in order to learn something. And I don't know if you you have this experience, David, you know, because you have the your YouTube channel and podcast as well. But I find that the when I look at the analytics um, on YouTube, you know, if you create, if you take, you know, say 24 hours to 48 hours, somewhere in there to create a 15 minute tutorial on YouTube, um, people might watch it for, you know, if people make it past the first five minutes, that's a lot. They just really want the answer. They don't really care about the whole thing. Um, and whereas on a podcast, I'll find that I'll put the same amount of time effort into creating an episode and people will listen to the end. And so I think that indicates that I can provide more value. You know, maybe the platform is smaller. I don't have as many you know people listening to the podcast as I have subscribers on YouTube, but the the relationship with those listeners is much deeper. Um, and I, I find a lot of value in that. So if I'm going to, you know, take time away from my family to create content, I want that content to have the most impact it can have. And right now I feel like that's through the podcast. I definitely agree with that, with a lot of what you were saying about the two different platforms, especially when it comes to audience retention of, how much you get out of YouTube. Um, you know, like you said, after the first, if somebody makes it even a five minutes, like that's insane. Yeah. It's like a miracle. YouTube. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, myself included. I find myself, you know, going two minutes in and I'm like, all right, I got some other stuff to do. Like I can't really sit here and watch this. Right. Um, that's my own videos as well. Uh, <laughs> but for the podcast, like you said, the audience retention and and I feel like the bond not only between yourself and your weekly listeners is much stronger, but also the bond between you and the person that you're interviewing or that you're just talking to and having a conversation with is much stronger as well. Um, yeah. yeah, that that's a great in in terms of like the podcast, what has been the most eye-opening or shocking thing? for you in terms of creating it or in terms of, uh, what I've learned. It could be either. Um, I see, I guess one thing is I like it a lot more than I thought I would. Um, you know, I've done blogging, I've done the YouTube thing in terms of content creation. I feel like podcasting is yet another one. And I, I enjoy writing, but I really struggle with it. I really have a hard time sticking my butt in the chair and looking at a blank page and coming up with something interesting to say. Um, and so I really had a hard time getting regular articles out on outdoor photography school. So then I was also focusing on the videos and that was also a lot of work. Um, and I did enjoy it. Um, but I found that I wasn't doing a whole lot of my own photography. Um, and so with the podcast, I feel like I can do both. I can still have my own creative outlet. I can create educational content that uh, people are valuing. Um, I'm actually, when I, a uh, little secret of, I'm sure people know this, but my Tidbit Tuesday episodes, I script them out. So I find that my editing process is a lot faster if I script what I'm going to say, what I'm going to teach in a Tidbit Tuesday, rather than me just go off of an outline because I have way too many filler words. <laughs> and I'll like say something three times and realize that the, it's the seventh time I say it that actually makes sense and is most clear. Um, so I, I go through the, the process of scripting the whole thing out and I can do that. And yet that's no different than writing a blog post. So I don't know what it is from a mental standpoint, why I have like this mental block with writing articles and I don't with writing the Tidbit Tuesdays. They're effectively the same thing. Um, so I, that's one thing I've learned about myself in the, in the podcasting process is how much I enjoy doing it. Um, and, um, 
yeah, I guess I guess that's the the top thing. Um, was there another part of that question? No, that was it. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> let's let's get back to your photography specifically. Um, how have you seen? Well, let's do it this way. Let's compare and contrast here. Okay. Uh, your photography before you started teaching versus where it is now. What does that look like? Mm, yeah. Um, I think before I started teaching, um, a lot of my photographs looked a lot like no different than a point and shoot composition type of thing where you're just like, oh, here's the pretty scene and, uh, and now I'm going to photograph it. And, um, you know, even when I was first learning, uh, you know, my DSLR, if I go back to, even if compositionally the photograph was decent, I look at the settings, I'm like, whoa, what was I thinking? <laughs> that worked from a, you know, exposure stop standpoint, I exposed it correctly, but why would you ever choose those settings? It doesn't make any sense given the subject and the composition and all that. So, I think um, my learning process was sped up, I think, by teaching. So if I, I, I actually, one of my first teaching outlets before I started outdoor photography school was I wrote articles for um, improved photography um, back in the day. And through that process, I would pick a topic to write about and then I'd be like, oh, I... I thought I had an understanding of this, but now that I'm doing a lot of research on it, I realize that I only understood about half of what I should understand about this particular topic. Um, and so the process of teaching it or, or being responsible to explain that concept to somebody else forces you to really um, be honest about your own understanding of something. And so, um, yeah, I think just my, my, knowledge base of photography um, has grown at a much faster rate due to teaching it than I would have if I if I hadn't chosen to to share that with anyone. Uh, so it's really challenged my own my own concepts and how I understood things or how I've approached or tried things in the field. Um, and and that's been really valuable. So I I recommend people teach photography if they want to learn it in a really fast way. <laughs> <laughs> I, and I think that just listening to your story, you are able to pull a lot of what you used to do in your scientific career into photography. And, and the word that stood out to me earlier was gathering scientific data. H how much do you think about that when you're in the field and actually applying that to, let's say, scouting locations or trying to figure out what composition is going to work best for a subject? Yeah, I don't know. I'm trying to think if, if when I'm in the field, yeah, I definitely will um, have that in the back of my mind of, you know, I, you know, I have a digital camera. So of course, it's cheap to create more frames of something and not worry about overdoing it. And so in that regard, I'll experiment more or I'll like say if I'm, I think I don't need to focus sack something, but then I'm like, you know what, whatever, I'll just do it anyway. I'll take the one, the single frame and may, hopefully that'll be fine. But otherwise I'll make sure I take multiple frames too, just in case I want to focus stack it later. Or if I want to make like a stitched panorama or something like that. And, and I may not need to, or I may not choose to, but I like to make sure that I'm um, if I think of it in the field, I'll usually do it. Um, so that once I get home, I'm not like, ah, why didn't I try a little bit wider or why didn't I, you know, zoom in on this one little thing. And obviously that still happens, but, um, so yeah, I am thinking about, um, taking, I think what my scientific background has given me in terms of approach is I think I have a naturally curious mind. And so, um, I think that helps a lot with trying to one learn photography, but to to look for compositions or have that kind of well, what if this? What if that? What if I try this setting? What if I go lower? What if I go and have a different perspective on this fern? Um, you know, what is the light doing? 
Um, how can I better understand light? You know, asking all those types of questions, I think, come from my scientific, maybe that's why I was becoming a scientist in the first place was because I think I'm naturally curious. Um, two, uh, being observant. That's something you have to do as a scientist is observe your experiments and data and study them and analyze them. And so I think I'm also uh, tuned into, um, I, I can easily tune into my surroundings because I think I'm also inclined to be observant of what's going on. And that definitely, sometimes I play this little game with myself where if I photograph a subject for a while and then I'm like, okay, I'm done here. I've got what I want. And then I'll be like, okay, just five minutes, don't move. And I'll sit there and I'll look without, you know, maybe I'll turn around or something, but I'm staying in the same spot for another five or 10 minutes, just trying to see what I see. And, um, you know, I'll end up surprisingly starting to find other subjects that I completely walked past before, or the light has changed enough during that time frame that things look entirely different. And so um, that has really helped me to find more of those small scenes and intimate, you know, stories of nature. Um, and then analyzing the information when I get home. Um, like we were talking about earlier, I think really helps. And I think that also not just for my own photography, but in studying other people's photography, I try to understand like, oh, wow, I love this image. It's just taking my breath away. Like why, why, what is drawing me into this? Um, how did they compose it? What sort of editing process do I think they used to, you know, bring out the contrast or make it more subtle or, um, you know, things like that. So I like to, <clears throat> excuse me, reverse engineer things to try to figure out what the process is. Um, am I answering your question? Absolutely. And, mm -hmm. and the trait that you said that, that I find most fascinating is noticing your own curiosity. What, what value does staying curious to a photographer bring to the way that they want to express themselves in their imagery? Oh, I, a ton. I think, you know, what I am curious about might be totally different than what you're curious about versus the next mm. person. And so, um, you know, something that I've talked about a couple times on my podcast is um, this book by Brene Brown called Atlas of the Heart. And in that book, she talks about um, all the different human emotions. There's you know, like 75 emotions that she studies. And one of them is awe and curiosity. And so awe is this emotion that we have often when we are out in nature, like that's that, you know, mind blowing sunset or this, you know, snow capped mountaintop or a foggy, you know, forest scene or something that just makes you go like, whoa, like, wow, I can't believe I'm here. That's awe. This like, sense of uh, feeling small in the greater natural world. Um, and then that often can lead to, you know, wonder. And wonder is is like curiosity where you want to know more. It's not just the experience of, of awe, but it's actually you want to know more. And so then that's when those questions start to come into play. And I think if you allow yourself to you know, do that transition from awe to wonder to curiosity, you're going to then start to find compositions that are resonating with you, you know, and it might be, you know, what strikes, what, what pulls my eye in and what makes me feel awe might be totally different than a, another photographer who I might be doing photography with and we'll create different compositions from that. So I think, I think curiosity is the key. I think that's, Step one um, to finding more like personally expressive photographs rather than photographs that you would see, you know, necessarily on Instagram. Yeah, I, I definitely think that, too. And not only the, the wonder part, but also how your personality affects that wonder, because mm -hmm. like my wife and I are totally different personalities her wonder and awe will lead her to a much more like research-based understanding to something. My wonder and awe goes way more 
like internally and and how do I feel about that and what do I think I'll sit there and not want to look anything up on Google and just think about it myself whereas she you know wants to write out like this I don't know essay about it right <laughs> um I don't know if you had that experience too uh, no, not so much. I mean, I, um, I, I realized I didn't really answer your question about scouting. I don't really do that. I, um, I mean, I'll have an eye out for different opportunities when I'm driving around. If I'm out doing, if I have a day or a couple of days where I can go do photography, I am always sort of keeping an eye out for potential future trips. Um, but I very rarely plan anything. Um, unless it's something that involves a celestial body like the moon or milky way or something like that like otherwise mm-hmm. i i don't bother with the planning um and i think you know keeping an open mind and having that sense of curiosity um really helps with having any possibility open to you like there are many times when i go out and i'm like wow we just had a ton of rain it's a cloudy foggy day today i'm going to go photograph waterfalls and streams and I'll head out and do that and I'm walking through the forest and it turns out well the mushrooms have just exploded and they're incredible and I'll never get to the stream because I've been photographing mushrooms for you know three hours on the trail and um, so things change and being just open to that change and that possibility I think is helpful and not being you know too disappointed that you didn't get to the waterfall or, or something like that um, but yeah, so I, I guess that's a balance with my normal analytical self. Like, uh, I've heard of some people who are like, I've have, I have spreadsheets upon spreadsheets of like this location with this time of day. And, you know, this is good for fall sunsets and this one's good for winter sunrises and, you know, whatever. Um, I don't have anything like that. Um, but, uh, that's part of the fun for me. I think it's keeping it open. That's great. That's great. Uh, where can people go to find more out about you? Uh, obviously, Outdoor Photography School, Outdoor Photography Podcast. Where else? Yep. If people want to look at my images, uh, you can find them on my portfolio site, which just is brendapetrella.com. And um, on Instagram at, at Brenda Petrella. And that's where I post um, some new images and also information about new episodes that come out on the podcast. Um, and then my, uh, YouTube channel is outdoor photography school. You could just Google that and it'll come up and I'm not active on that currently, but someday I will get back to it, uh, when, uh, life calms down in other ways. Uh, I hope to be able to do that again. Well, she's Brenda Petrella. Brenda, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast and and sharing your viewpoints. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. It was a lot of fun.